everyone. I've got 12.30, so let us get started. Welcome. If this is your first time, we're really glad you're here. Uh, we do this every week, every Tuesday. Bruce provides the food, I provide the teaching, and you provide the eye candy. So thank you. No, um, we hope you had a good time last week. Um, Marvin, my friend, he leads the Ruth study uptown. So on uh, Thursdays, they do one at the uptown location. And he leads that one. What y'all talk about? I just told him he had free reign. So you guys remember? It was that good, huh? I'm going to tell him. He talked about you. Oh, he talked about me. Oh, clearly. Well, uh, good, good. I'm sure it was all excellent. <laughs> well, I, um, yeah, I was down in Georgia. My mom had had some surgery, I and mean, then it was her birthday, and the family get together, so I got to spend it with her, and I appreciate you guys letting me go for a week. We are back to Leviticus, though. <clears throat> We're in Leviticus 23. I told people, somebody asked, I forgot who I was talking to, I think it was, a, yeah, it was at a seminary event recently and was just telling them about what we were doing and they when I told them yeah we're studying Leviticus all year they just looked at me like I was insane and so I told them I said you know what every study every chapter is on our YouTube channel and on our podcast so go watch it and I dare you to not find it interesting uh, because I certainly found it interesting and a number of you who have told me oh I didn't know this stuff was in there or I didn't know how relevant any of this was um, that's why we do what we do that's why when Paul said all scripture is God breathed, he was talking about Leviticus as well. And, um, and we mentioned the very first week of this study, the New Testament authors quote Leviticus. You know, when Peter wants to give encouragement and, and exhortation to Gentile believers scattered throughout the Roman Empire, he quoted Leviticus in the center of the Holiness Code. The entire book of Hebrews is based on, in large amount, the things that are happening in Leviticus. So without understanding Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, you know, those are the books we kind of skip over. Without understanding that, we don't understand the New Testament. If we do, we have a partial understanding of the New Testament. I said it a couple of weeks ago, not knowing the Old Testament and just picking up the New Testament and reading it through is like watching the Olympics in the original old broadcast from the 1940s very grainy, or like moon landing footage. Those of you that remember the moon landing, it was very grainy, you're watching Neil Armstrong step down the ladder, you know, like that's what it's like. You can see it, you can understand it, you can see what's going on, but reading the New Testament with an understanding of the Old Testament is like looking at pictures from NASA today in comparison. It just brings out so much vivid clarity and detail that you would never have noticed before or not appreciated before if all you had was just a, a New Testament knowledge. And so that's why we do, that's why we focus here on going through these passages that uh, a lot of us skip when we're reading our one-year devotional Bibles. So we're in Leviticus 23 for the second half. Last time, two weeks ago, we looked at the first three holidays uh, feasts in Israel's calendar. Remember, Israel's calendar was an agrarian calendar, and it was on the lunar cycle rather than a solar year. So everything was based around like new moons, new months, and the time of year when there was harvesting going on. That's the thing, is they were moving into a harvest, a, an agrarian, a farming society. And they were not that. At the time that they were being given Leviticus, they are a group of slaves who have been making bricks 
for 400 years. They're not used to planting and harvesting crops. They're not used to sowing seed. They're not used to these things. So God is giving them, not just saying, here are feasts that you're going to do, but he's giving them, giving it to them in a way that coincides with the agricultural cycle of their year. So that when they're doing the things that they normally do to survive, even the acts of harvesting or sowing, reaping, even those acts are acts of worship. Why? Because they're doing it on the very thing that God promised them, which was the land itself. Remember, they don't have land at this point. So their whole life as a people growing their crops and bringing in their harvest is is to be an act of worship because God's given it all to them. Not in a generic sense of God makes everything, so he's the origin of his origin of everything. Anyway, no, in a very specific sense of they had no land. They had no identity. They had no nothing. And God brought them out of slavery in Egypt into this land that, as he says, is flowing with milk and honey. This land that is lush, this land that is, that is fruitful for them to have to be God's covenant people in that land. So that all the peoples of the earth watching them will see who is this people and who is this God that's given them this. That's the point. That's Israel, was, Israel was never to exist for Israel's sake. Ever. Israel was always to exist for the sake of the nations. Their entire reason for being was to carry on what God had promised to their ancestor Abraham, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through them. So from the very beginning, they were a people of mission. They were a people whose identity itself would be a form of evangelism to the entire world. So then the first three week, the first three festivals that God gave them that we looked at last time were at the beginning at the first harvest, the barley harvest. And um, and they had to do with just check the video. We don't want to review all of that, but they ended up um, we talked it in the, the festival that they were going to celebrate, which is Pentecost, that the, the last of the three in the spring that they were to provide the means for the community to be able to all celebrate together. So they weren't to reap all of their produce. They were to leave some for the poor in the land. And we talked about the implications of that and what it means for our whole worldview, even in modern politics, left, right, and uh, entitlement versus working for your what you earn and all of this stuff. We looked at the balance that Scripture holds in providing for everyone through what God has provided for us, but also not just as a handout but as a means by which people can work and participate in that process of cultivating the land. Because that's such a big deal, is cultivating the land was an act of worship in Israel. So then, uh, verse 23 is going to begin the uh, holidays, the feasts that take place around September, October. So these are going to be the fall festivals, the fall harvests uh, celebrations. So we've had the first three in the spring. This is the second half of Israel's calendar year. The first one, verse 23, the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, on the first day of the seventh month, you are to have a day of rest, a sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blasts. Do no regular work, but present an offering made to the Lord by fire. So the first festival is called the Festival of Trumpets. And a trumpet, you know, you think of like Miles Davis or something, but no, it's a shofar. It's like a ram's horn. Um, most of there are where well, there were metal trumpets that, that they would use, but in particular, this would be like blowing of the shofar, the ram's horn, and and we don't have much information about this festival. It's just the beginning. It's the first day of the seventh month. 
So all of these next two, three feasts are going to happen on the seventh month. The seventh month, the Sabbath month. Seven is everywhere in Israel's calendar. It's ingrained into their cycle of how they worship. Seven is the most biblical of all numbers. It's a number for wholeness, completeness, uh, fullness, integrity. Um, all of these images combined. So it's no wonder that the seventh month would be the month that contains Israel's main fall holidays. And so the first one is this festival of trumpets where it's, it's a Sabbath rest. They have a sacred assembly to commemorate it. They do no regular work, uh, blow the trumpets. The trumpets were, blowing of the trumpet has different meaning in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's a call to battle. Sometimes it's a call to worship. Sometimes it's, a, it's to precede an announcement that's going to happen. So this, this first day is like the beginning of the month, blowing the trumpet saying, this is the special month that started. This is the Sabbath month that has started. Get ready. Because the month, basically like, one out of every three days of this month is going to be taken up with a festival or, or celebration of some type. So this is a big deal. And the one that comes right on the heels of that is uh, the most solemn of Israel's holidays. Of all the high holidays, this was the most solemn, and it's Yom Kippur. Verse 26, the Lord said to Moses, The tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. Hold a sacred assembly. Deny yourselves. And literally in Hebrew, I think it says, afflict yourselves. Um, and present an offering made to the Lord by fire. Do no work on that day because it's the day of atonement when atonement is made for you before the Lord your God. Anyone who does not deny himself on that day will be cut off from his people. I will destroy from among his people anyone who does any work on that day. You shall do no work at all. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. It is a Sabbath of rest for you, and you must deny yourselves. From the evening of the ninth day of the month until the following evening, you are to observe your Sabbath. So this is the time now. We've already looked at what's going to happen on that day, back in chapter 16. Chapter 16 was the, the thing that happens in the Day of Atonement, where the two goats and one's let out. And all. So we know what's going to happen. That was written to the priests, primarily. This is to Israel, to the people. This is telling the people's side of it. So the priests already know from chapter 16 what they're to do on that day in the tabernacle. This is the people. This is God telling the people, listen, this is not a playing around day. This is not just another day where you think, oh, the stuff's going on in the tabernacle. And that's nice. Our sins are being atoned for. Let me go out and harvest my crops or let me do what I can to get ahead. Let me continue. No, none of that. It was stop everything on this day. Atonement is being made. Your sins that have culminated, that have stained God's altar all year long, day after day after day, your sins have been piling up. God's, remember the tabernacle we saw was like a garbage dump. It was like where all of the sins of the people were being heaped on God's altar and were being the blood was being sprinkled and left there. It wasn't wiped off. The tabernacle was like full of dried blood on everything. And it was just like staining and staining and staining. And God, over the year, was absorbing all of Israel's sinfulness on that altar through those sacrifices. And then on the Day of Atonement would be the one day when all of those sins of the year would be laid on the head of the, off of the goat that was led away. And then it would be carried out and led into the wilderness away. And it was symbolically, it was like emptying the trash can. 
It was, it was clicking empty on the little trash bin on your computer, getting rid of all the old files, deleting all of the junk and the spam and the nonsense. It was getting rid of all of that so that then Israel would have a fresh start for this year. That was the one day. So it was incredibly important what was going on. So it wasn't just another holy day. It was, it was, it was a very solemn day. And God gives serious warning here. If you don't observe this day, this day determines your standing within my covenant people. Refusing to observe the Yom Kippur, refusing to observe the Day of Atonement is basically refusing to accept the covenant. You're negating your share of the covenant. You are saying, I am not a redeemed people and I'm not in need of atonement and I'm not in need of, of, of giving myself in my entirety to God on this day. And the result is that is God saying, okay, you are not part of the people. You are cut off from the people. Your name is wiped out from our people. You are no longer part of this community. So it's really important that Israel obeyed this holy, high, high, holy day and not just think it like any other day. It's very specific. And there's us looking back through the lens of the cross. We see Yom Kippur was always pointing forward to when God would finally come down and be that sacrificial lamb. When he would finally come down and be the one who bears all of the sins of the people and removes it outside of the city walls where he gets crucified on a hill called Golgotha and literally takes their sins away once and for all. Because up until now, it was just a yearly thing, year after year after year. And then finally, when God stepped in and made himself the sacrifice, then that would put an end to that continue endless cycle of, of atonement day after day after day. A whole book of Hebrews, you can read it and it highlights this fact. So for Christians then, Yom Kippur, looking back at it, we see the reason that it was so significant, the reason why God put such emphasis on it with such magnitude was because of what it was going to point forward to. It would be the day that uh, all of it, all of the festivals and all of the feasts would be kind of culminated in Jesus. And the aspect of the sacrifices that, or the aspect of Yom Kippur that would be highlighted through Jesus would be his death on the cross and his taking the sins of the people on himself. So it's very somber and, uh, and it's a serious day. But it's not the last day. It's not the final uh, ceremony because there's one more feast that comes after that. Verse 33, the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, on the 15th day of the seventh month, the Lord's Feast of Tabernacles begins, and it lasts for seven days. Some of your translations may say Feast of Booths, or uh, Booths, Tabernacles. Newer translations say Huts. Uh, it's all the same word. It just means temporary dwelling. The first day is a sacred assembly. Do no regular work. Then for seven days present offerings made to the Lord by fire. And on the eighth day, hold a sacred assembly and present an offering made to the Lord by fire. It is the closing assembly. Do no regular work. So this holiday stretches eight days, a whole week. And then the first day of the new week is the final day of the, uh, of the holiday. Uh, verse 37, these are the Lord's appointed feasts, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies for bringing offerings made to the Lord by fire. The burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices, drink offerings required for each day. These offerings are in addition to those for the Lord's Sabbaths, in addition to your gifts and whatever you have vowed and all the free will offerings you give to the Lord. In other words, all the stuff we read about back in Leviticus 1 through 5. 
So in addition to all that, these aren't the regular sacrifices. You can't do double duty. Like when your birthday falls on Christmas and your parents go, well, just just do both at once. And you kind of feel like, wow, that stinks. You know, you don't get a birthday. God's not into that. He's not, he's not like, oh, well, it happens to fall on the holiday, so we can just, the sacrifices can do double duty this year. No. In addition to the ongoing daily ritual lives of Israel in the sacrificial system, in the tabernacle, in addition to that, there are going to be sacred gatherings where all of the community will come together for a particular purpose. And these are the six of those that we've looked at in this chapter. So then that's a, that was a parenthetical note, verses 37 and 38. Getting back to then the main point, verse 39. So beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, so halfway through the seventh month, after you've gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of rest, and the eighth day is also a day of rest. On the first day, you're to take choice fruit from the trees and palm fronds, leafy branches, and poplars, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year, for a whole week each year. This is, this is a holiday. This is a festival holiday. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in booths or tabernacles or dwellings or huts for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in booths, so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in booths when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses announced to the Israelites the appointed feasts of the Lord. So this last day, uh, in the Hebrew text, is called Sukkoth, and that's just the plural for the, 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 these little dwellings, these little booth, tabernacle, whatever. Uh, it's still observed today in Judaism. They make these, they're, they're largely ceremonial, little uh, commemorative huts or little dwelling places, sometimes on the roofs of houses, sometimes in the backyard, sometimes in the garage, sometimes wherever. Um, and, it's, and it's seen as pointing back to the time where Israel lived in temporary dwellings in the wilderness. So after, this is, this is the, uh, the picture of what's going on. This is in the fall. It's the festival of ingathering, or the festival of tabernacles, or booths, or sukkah. Um, the grapes and the gra- oh, excuse me, the grain, and then the fruits of the trees are harvested in the fall. And after the harvest, all of the stuff has been brought in, so the spring harvest was done, and that was celebrated with Pentecost. And then the fall harvest is brought in, and it's done. That's all for the year. They have all of the pr- uh, provisions that they'll need to get through the rainy season to get through when they plant the, the next year's crops and watch them grow. That's to get them through to next spring. So they've got everything. And once they're in the land and they've gathered in all the fruits, they've gathered in all the produce, then at the end of that is this celebration. And God says, go live in tents now. Go live in booths, little huts, little makeshift. Little huts is a great term for it because that's what they were. Go live in those for a week. Because I want you to always remember when your harvest is full and your barns are overflowing and you've brought in all the fruit of the vineyard and you've got everything, I want you to remember that you used to live in huts in the desert. That I brought you into this land. So for a week, eight days actually, you're going to camp. Because you will always be a people whose origin came out of 
camping in the wilderness and being provided for supernaturally by God when you were just a rabble of slaves who had come out of a powerful empire and into your own. So it was a way of constantly pointing the people back to how God had provided for them in his covenant. He had brought them from nothing to where they are today. So no matter how rich they got, no matter how great a harvest year it had been, they were always to remember, you started as slaves, you started living in huts in the wilderness. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that and become complacent and think that you've somehow earned or deserved all of this prosperity that I am going to bring to you. And Deuteronomy will repeat that warning to the next generation of Israelites when Moses leads them on the cusp of the land. This festival, in, in um, it was a celebration of God's provision, it was a celebration of the quality of the harvest, but it was also, in later biblical times, it came to be associated with, um, with celebrating the previous year and then entreating God to provide what's needed for the next year. So there would be stuff involving water, there would be water that would be poured out by the priests, in a ceremony of like this is in this is in the later testamental time so not in this point but later before the time of Jesus though uh, there came to be this pouring out of water that symbolized God's provision of rain for the coming year that he would then provide the rain needed to make the crops grow so that they could celebrate it again the next year and it was at that festival this festival in John 7 when Jesus talked about being the source of living water and that, that anyone who thirsts would come to him. And so Jesus, this was the holiday that he made. It's in John 7. You can read about that interaction. How Jesus uh, used this holiday, used this festival, this celebration to basically tell the people, hey, I'm what you've been longing for all along. I'm the one to whom all of these holidays and festivals are pointing ultimately. Jesus did that with a number of, at Hanukkah, Jesus stood up, which is the dedication of the temple, which is what we know of Hanukkah, when the, it celebrates the lights uh, not burning out, and it's being, you know, the candles would be lit, the menorahs would be lit, you know, Hanukkah, I mean, you've grown up with it. That's when Jesus declared, I am the light of the world. And so Jesus' actions in coordination with Israel's holidays also spoke a lot about who he said he was, who he thought he was. And, and a lot of it's not overt in the New Testament. It doesn't say, the New Testament, John 7, doesn't say, now turn back to Leviticus 23. Remember that? You know, it doesn't say that. Because the first readers were all Jewish. They understood, yeah, of course this is the holiday. And wow, Jesus is saying that on this holiday? Like, they would put the pieces together. And it would make sense to them. It gets kind of lost on us because we don't have the familiarity with the Old Testament that they do. But all of this is uh, basically God is ingraining in his people. So Yom Kippur, this is the cool pattern, I think. All in the seventh month, blow the trumpets. Sound the trumpets. Something big is happening. That's what the trumpets signified. Whether it was battle, whether it was a prophetic announcement, whether it was judgment, whatever. Sound the trumpets. Then, a few days later, get ready. Afflict yourselves. Deny yourself. Repent of your sins mourn over your sins. All of your sins right now are being carried off of your camp 
of the midst carried out of this portable Mount Sinai that we call the tabernacle being carried out by this goat upon whom they've been laid after the other one had been sacrificed to God being carried out away from you never to return. That's why the goat was led out. And in later times, late, much later, the, they would lead the goat out and someone would actually throw it off a cliff to make sure that it died and didn't wander back into the camp because it was seen as like this super toxic goat. It was loaded with all the sins of the people. And the whole point was to get it away from the people. But regardless, the, the, the sins are carried outside of the camp, outside of the people, away into the wilderness, never to return again. And then the people now have a fresh start. And so a few days after that, now let's celebrate. Now let's party. And let's party for seven days. Let's blow it out. All right? We're going to have a big feast. We're going to have sacrifices daily. And remember, sacrifices, I had a conversation Sunday uh, with a woman in church. She, she was just like, I don't understand the sacrifices. It's just so foreign. It's so weird to the God I, that I know. And she thought that the sacrifices were just killing the animal. And that's it. And so I had to tell her, well, the, the, the animals that were killed were then eaten. And this was how they got their meat. This was other than the whole bird offering. The rest of the sacrifices, this is how they ate. This was like killing the turkey for Thanksgiving. Like you, you, it's part of it, killing the pig for Christmas ham, whatever you come from. So then it was like, for her, it made a little more sense. Like, oh, that makes a lot more sense then of how it could be celebrated and how it could be a thing looked forward to. Because within the, even though it involved the death of a surrogate and the death of an animal, um, there was still, life would come from that. Sustenance would come from that. Celebration would come from that. I mean, hello. <laughs> We're sitting around here at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse eating and enjoying a meal. That was an animal at some point. Um, if you're vegetarian, do with that what you will. But in Israel's time, they were an agrarian society, and that's how they ate. And that's how they celebrated, and that's how they came together. And so all of it, God has it all wrapped up, and, and all of it stationed around these times of the year, agriculturally, that also coincide with the events in the life of them as a people, theologically. So there's a whole, I mean, you could spend a whole semester studying the holidays and the feasts and the festivals of Israel, but that's the thing that I want to leave us with today as we wrap up, is that God had these holidays, and they weren't just, we, we look at holidays, our culture today, holidays are driven by commercialism. I mean, every year Linus stands up and tells you that, if you watch Charlie Brown, every year he tells you that commercialism is driving our holidays. And, and Charlie Brown learns the lesson every year. But it's true. Everything is driven by commercialism. So our big holidays are basically, they're celebrated culture-wide to the extent that they generate economic growth. So Thanksgiving is great, but it's great because Black Friday is coming up. And that's when the stores can get back on track. Christmas holiday is, Christmas is great, but it's because of the holiday shopping that drives our economy. So those are our big holidays. But Easter, Easter doesn't do squat for the economy. I mean, nothing happens other than Cadbury. Nobody's getting rich on Easter. But Easter is the culmination of the Christian calendar. I mean, it is the holiday. However, most of us grew up, if we're honest, we got excited about Christmas morning, not necessarily Easter morning. 
Maybe we got an Easter basket, and that was fun, but we had to get up before the sunrise to do a sunrise service if we did that. Um, and I was a preacher's kid, so I had to do that. But it didn't have the same import because it ha- didn't have all the cultural baggage that the other holidays had. So it didn't feel as nostalgic. It didn't feel as sacred. It didn't feel as holy because we were kind of the only ones celebrating it, other than some bunnies and some eggs and chocolate and this and that. Like, Easter wasn't really... Well, in Israel, it was both. It was, they had the full weight of their cultural, economic, agricultural well-being wrapped around these theologically significant holidays. So for them, it was an entire thing. It was a big deal. It wasn't like Fourth of July or Thanksgiving or... St. Patrick's Day, whichever holiday you choose, it was it was something much bigger and much more sacred, and that's how God had set it up for His people. And only later, after the time of Jesus, that the church started to de-Judaize and separate the gospel from the Old Testament and the faith of Israel, that the gospel holidays sort of started taking on a life of their own, and the Jewish holidays got kind of forgotten. Once you had Jewish friends, and then you just, as a politeness you'd celebrate Hanukkah with them or maybe a Passover Seder or something like that. So it's something that we have, have in a lot of ways we've lost uh, and, and I don't think we're going to get it back at a, as a culture, but what we can do is through studying the text and through seeing how the calendar was shaped in Israel and then looking at the New Testament, how Jesus refashioned it around himself, then we can get a better appreciation for what was going on in the story of Israel. But we're out of time. It's 1 o'clock on the dot. So next week, uh, we're going to come back. We're going to look at one final provision. Then there's going to be the second narrative. So Leviticus has only had one narrative so far. Only one section of Leviticus has told a story. And it was about uh, Aaron's two sons getting torched because they offered unauthorized fire. The next narrative, the only other narrative in Leviticus is next week. And it's going to be about someone else getting judged for infringing on what God had specifically, repeatedly told them not to do. But for us, it's going to seem kind of harsh. So uh, come back next week and we will pick it up there. Have a great week, guys.